0: Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to thank one of our listeners, Leslie Shivers, who left us a review. She wrote, Thank you so much for your insight and discussion on the issue with Ravi Zacharias. I really needed help processing And this podcast was extremely beneficial. Thank you for not being afraid to address the hard stuff. Leslie, our Candid team is always encouraged when we hear from our listeners. It's a great reminder of how the Lord is working through this podcast. Leslie, we're sending you a copy of Dad's newest book, Hope for This Present Crisis. We hope you enjoy it. Did you know that leaving a review and rating helps others to find us? Would you mind leaving us a review today? Use your favorite podcast platform, go to our show, and leave a rating along with a review. Perhaps next week, we will mention you on the show. Now, on to our episode. What we do when the church meets on Sunday
1: is formative. It teaches. It demonstrates what God is, and the things we say, and the things that we sing in church, and even the order in which we do them— all will help shape people's understanding of who God is and how we can be reconciled to Him through Christ.
0: What do you think of when you hear the word worship? Music, your worship leader, a band, a choir, your favorite playlist. Worship is so much more than that. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's dive deeper into the true meaning of worship with today's guest, Matt Merker. Matt is the Director of Creative Resources and Training at Getty Music and previously served on the pastoral staff and as an elder of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He is also a songwriter who has penned popular hymns like He Will Hold Me Fast and I Will Wait For You. His songs have been recorded by the Gettys, Sandra McCracken, Shane and Shane, Selah, Sovereign Music, and more. Matt has a new book out called Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People. Together we discuss corporate worship, the reason for Sunday gathering, the types of worship the Lord calls us as the church to, and how important it is to continue to gather as a church in a pandemic, even through creative means. Now on to our conversation that I am certain will leave you so encouraged to engage with your church community. Well, today we have the great privilege of having Matt Merker on Candid Conversations. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks for having me, Jonathan.
0: Well, Matt, today we're talking about corporate worship, which happens to be the title for your new book, and uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But first of all, I wonder if you could just take a few minutes and give us sort of the uh, the Nickel Tour of, of Matt Merker. Introduce yourself to us.
1: Absolutely. Well, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm married to Erica. We've been married almost 12 years. We've got two kids uh, who are little. They're six and two years old. I've been here just over a year. I serve for Getty Music, uh, which is the ministry of Keith and Kristen Getty, the modern hymn writers. You might know them from the song In Christ Alone and some of their other hymns. I help them with lots of different things. a yearly conference we do called Sing Global, uh, I help them with a hymn writers training course called the Hymn Writing Collective, and we have an online learning portal that I manage. So uh, the Lord has been very kind. I get to spend my days trying to equip people in the broader church uh, to exalt Christ when we gather as his people and try to equip songwriters and song leaders. Uh, I served at a church in Washington, D.C. for 10 years uh, called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I was an elder there, was on staff there, uh, originally from Long Island, New York. Uh, oh, and grew up marker, in, the, huh? yeah, uh, grew up in the church. Grew up playing music in church, and so church music has been part of just my ministry or my my life <laughs> for a yeah. long time. But sure. the Lord has taught me a lot along the way through His Word, uh, through other believers, uh, and so it's it's wonderful to be where He's brought us now.
0: Well, it's encouraging to hear that. And for those of us in churches that have benefited from good music, we are very grateful for people who dedicate their time to these things. And uh, and you're certainly one of those. So, Matt, uh, we're talking about your book, again, Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People. I wonder if you could tell us what was sort of the, the impetus that, that drove you to, to write this book.
1: Yeah, I wrote the book because I think— If we don't understand what a local church is, we're going to miss out on some of the greatness and glory that God has for us in the Mm. weekly gathering of the church. So I think oftentimes when people think of worshiping at church, sadly, too often we think of it as an individual thing because we're all supposed to worship God with our whole lives. And sometimes the assumption is, well, when I go to church on Sunday, my personal worship is just happening in an amped up way. Because now I get to have a great uh, band, maybe, accompanying the singing, or a great preacher teaching me from God's word, or I get to have a great orchestra and choir, whatever it might be. And so we see it as a souped-up version of individual worship, when actually it's something altogether distinct and unique. So I, I wrote the book because I want us to see church as something that we're part of, a gathering, a family that we are a part of, rather than an event we attend, and I think when we make that shift in our minds, a lot of stuff opens up about what worship is and how wonderful it is for us.
0: What is sort of the, the different views that you encounter when, you know, that word is used? And we could even start with defining that word worship, but what are the typical things that come to people's minds when they hear that? Uh, and what about that are you kind of pushing against?
1: Yeah. I mean, so, so often when you talk to someone about worship, they immediately <laughs> think of, of singing, of music, right. yeah. Uh, or how is the worship today in in church? Which usually they mean sort of how is the music?
0: <laughs> the um, worship is too loud this week. Exactly, the worship <laughs> was
1: too loud, or it was too hip, or it wasn't hip enough. You know, right. you can critique it from all sorts of different angles. I want to, you know, go back to the Bible and expand our understanding yes. of what worship is, because actually worship is so pervasive; it's so important. There's no one word in in Hebrew in the Old Testament or in Mm. Greek in the New Testament that translates as worship. Uh, I mean, worship in English comes from the old idea of of ascribing worth, worth worthship. But when you look at the various words in the Bible for this concept, you see things like bowing down prostrate before the Lord, Mm. exalting the Lord, adoring the Lord, magnifying his name, serving him with gladness, offering him thanksgiving giving him a sacrifice of praise. These these are the sort of concepts that come around the idea of worship. And Paul says, because of God's mercy, we're to offer him our whole bodies, our whole lives as a living sacrifice. In Romans 12.1, he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. So in a sense, you you and I talking right now on a podcast, this is worship. When I change the oil in my car, when I change my son's diapers, that is part of worship. I'm to do all things to the glory of God, our jobs, the way we care for our families, the way we love our neighbors, the way we're involved as citizens of our country. all of that is, is all of life worship. Yeah. But then there's an important subset of that which is gathered worship, or corporate yeah. worship. Not corporate meaning, uh, like business, like corporate America. right? right. But corporate, corporate meaning of body, the, yeah. the body, the body yeah. of Christ. And so corporate worship is everything we do when we gather. That's preaching. That's taking the Lord's Supper together, baptizing. It does include singing, but it includes reading the word, praying the word, all of these uh, really important things God calls us to do when we meet.
0: It makes me think of that phrase that people kind of banter about that always makes me cringe a little bit, uh, is the sort of doing life together uh, (laughs) is a phrase that people use. And I think, you know, it just sounds so... Uh, strange to me. But I think that is probably a better word for that would be worship together.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good point because all of life is worship and all of life is to be lived in fellowship with the people of God. Yeah. Uh, so the church mm-hmm. gathers and then the church also scatters. And that's sometimes what people mean by that phrase is right. we're not just going to be brothers and sisters on Sunday morning, but through the week, we're going to support one another, pray for one another, share what we have with one another, exhort one another admonish one another, you know, uh, be hospitable to one another, all these one another's that we see in scripture. But the mm-hmm. Bible does have a category. You see it in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul says, when you come together as a church. As church. Yeah. Uh, so that's what this book is about, that coming together.
0: What are some of the major themes that you're pulling out from that sort of Sunday, Lord's Day gathering together?
1: Yeah, I, I think the first thing is understanding what the gathering is. Because, mm. because too often we sort of go past uh, the theological meaning of being a gathered people, yes. and COVID has made it hard for us to remember that reality. Because <laughs> different churches are doing different things, and we can talk about that later on if you want. Yeah, yeah. the various approaches to the pandemic. But I will say, normally, when there's not a global pandemic raging, the church is a gathered people, and and. The Bible gives us lots of pictures for what the church is like to help us understand it. The three that I focus on in the book are, number one, we're an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. So when we meet, we are ambassadors of a different culture, a different society. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. We are, uh, as my friend Jonathan Lehman says, a time machine from the future. <laughs> you know, we're an outpost from That's the right. new creation. So in that kingdom. sense, yeah, it's 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 part of Jesus's kingdom or an expression of it. So when you walk into a Christian church, obviously people are going to be speaking a language that is a language spoken by other people on this globe. Right. Uh, people are going to be wearing clothes that are worn by other people on this globe. We're going to be singing, using instruments that other people on this globe use. But we are displaying our heavenly citizenship in all the truths that we're declaring. In the supernatural way that we love one another and welcome one another, hopefully a supernatural unity across the various barriers of this earth, whether it be nationality, ethnicity, yeah. even political views. You know, we're coming together to say Jesus is Lord. He yeah. is the King. Uh, so that's the first thing we're an outpost of the kingdom. The second thing is the church is a temple for the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. uh, which means that when we gather, we encounter the triune God. The one true living God. And we encounter him not primarily in our own personal feelings and intuitions, right. although I do believe God meets us in our, in our own hearts, but we encounter him in one another. Yes. So there's a sense in which when we come together as a church, something different is happening than when I am experiencing God's presence when I'm alone. And I think I can experience his presence when I'm alone. I, we are individually a temple for his spirit, but we are also corporately a temple where God meets with us. And then the third thing is that we're the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever Paul talks about the body of Christ, he puts the accent on edification. So 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about a worship service there. And it seems the Corinthians were really focused on how flashy a gift they could uh, use. Right. I've got tongues. Well, I've got prophecy. Ooh, which yeah. one is, you know, you can, <laughs> which one's you more got, important? which one's more important. And Paul says, whoa, 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 guys. Do everything for building up your a body. Every member is important. He, he gets at that in chapter 12. It doesn't matter if you're an elbow or the tongue or the nose. The point is that you're all supposed to build one another up to maturity. And so that means that when your church meets or when my church meets, we're coming together not as consumers of content flowing to us from the stage. Primarily, we're coming as servants, We're coming as members of the body to build one another up, to do each other good. Uh, And so I think when we understand that a church is those things, it is an outpost of the kingdom. It is a holy temple for the spirit. It is the body of Christ. Well, that informs what I'm expecting then when I turn up on Sunday morning.
0: You bring up a great point there, but the American mindset is so individualism, individualistically geared. Yeah. How do we as leaders in the church teach our people and push against that? Is it just reinforcing it week after week after week and and explaining it? Or, you know, are there different methodologies that you sort of would recommend?
1: Yeah, it's a a great question. I do think teaching it constantly is very wise. One thing that helps with that is practicing church membership. And I know different churches have different views or practices on that and and ways that they apply it. But When we look at scripture in the New Testament, what we see about the church is that it involves a conscious commitment to certain people. Your church may be too large for you to know everyone, but there's still a sense in which you're committing to that gathering. And Hebrews 13 says the leaders of the church have to give account to God Mm. for those that they're shepherding. So, you know, if you're an elder of your congregation, you have to give account. But, you know, God's not expecting you to give account for the people of my church here in Nashville. You don't know that. So there has to be a <laughs> sense some in which the people are known yeah. to the leaders and to one another because we're also responsible for the spiritual well-being of, of each other. We see that throughout the New Testament. And so uh, teaching people that you are committed, you, you are covenanted in a sense to these mm. other believers, that will then show up in corporate worship because when we gather – I'm not just singing because it it gives me fresh joy in Christ. I am doing that. Singing gives me fresh joy in Christ. But you know, Ephesians five says when we sing, we're to be addressing one another in yeah. psalms and spiritual songs. So I yeah. am singing because there's people in my church who need to be reminded of these gospel encouraging realities, yeah. and they're not going to get the encouragement that God intends for them unless I open my mouth and sing. But in the, and vice versa is true. I might be turning yeah. up discouraged. That's right and struggling and fighting against temptation. I, I need to hear the believers around me singing things or praying for me or saying amen after a prayer or reading scripture. And so I come and I see these other church members that I've committed to. Church, you know, People, people uh, can sometimes be down on church membership and say, oh, it, it feels so, so formal. A lot of young people today right. say uh, they, they want yeah. authenticity in church. I just want to be authentic. Right. Well, I say, actually, you get authenticity through commitment. Absolutely. It's through a commitment like church membership. Yeah. Now you're really known. Now you're saying, guys, I'm going to take the risk and put myself out there and commit yeah. to you. You're going to commit to me. That's where authenticity happens.
0: Yeah. There's that's some skin where, in the game.
1: Yes, you've got some skin in the game and you, people are caring for you and you're caring for them. And so I think that's a really important way that we fight against that individualism, which you rightly noted is, is definitely a danger today
0: you brought something up when you were, you know, on the outpost of the kingdom uh, uh, imagery that you gave and, and I, you know, you, you, you said um, the language that we use will be language. That's different from, you know, in, in essence, the kingdom of this world, you know, what do you say to, and I know we're getting a little bit off the the sort of music centric nature of this conversation, but in a sense, you know, what do you do with the, that model of sort of the seeker friendly, um, explain everything to everyone. Uh, you, you know, don't don't use the sort of church language that, that these people would not understand.
1: Oh, it's a, it's a great question, and uh, it's something I've thought a lot about because I was on staff at a church that had learned a lot from the church growth movement, the seeker sensitive yes. movement, and I want to affirm the zeal for evangelism. And that comes from that movement and the desire to break down barriers and to, as you said, explain things. Because Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 envisions an unbeliever coming into the gathering, uh, which I think is very instructive. And I think the seeker-sensitive guys and gals have it exactly right on that point, that we shouldn't just gather only thinking that Christians are going to be there. I do think the gathering is primarily for God's exaltation and for the church's edification. But to throw in another E word, I think evangelism happens as we're doing those things. Yes, We exalt God and put the focus on the triune creator God who has redeemed us. And when we edify one another by reminding each other of the gospel, by teaching the word straight up, explaining scripture, what it means for our lives, Uh, We want the unbeliever to hear, or I might even say overhear that. Um, So I I think it's a great insight that we should be careful to explain things. We should be hospitable, but we should not tailor our services toward what the unbeliever wants. Right. That's where it goes too far is when the the church meeting becomes essentially an outreach rally. Now, outreach rallies are great. You want to do that on a Friday night? (laughs) That's right. They have their place. Yeah. yeah, they definitely have their place. But what happened in the in the seeker-sensitive movement is that became Sunday morning. And believers were told, if you want to grow, that needs to happen somewhere else. That happens at a, a, a different meeting or a small group. Right. Um, it's not, I'm not the not Sunday body
0: gathering, yeah.
1: Right, exactly. But I, I want to say believers growing because they're hearing the word of God sung and taught. And unbelievers, hearing the gospel explained to them in a clear and winsome way, those things are not opposed. Those things are mutually reinforcing. I want both and, not either or.
0: Well, and and our mutual friend, Jeremy Zell, he and I had this conversation yesterday about, you know, it's creating that, in a sense, that road to Emmaus experience, that yeah. weren't our hearts burning within us when he was telling us of these things, right? So mm. it's the spirit is doing a work in that person who's obviously coming into the doors of the church for some reason, and they're hearing and seeing, and even if they can't necessarily understand all the terminology, there's something inside of them that's that's resounding and saying, this is right. This yes. is the place where you should be at this moment. Amen. Another question now, if you move from, you know, the, the Presbyterian church down the street, the Southern Baptist church across the street, and, and the, the Methodist one, you're going to get a range of of experiences. You're going to get a range of encounters with how they view worship, how they run their service on a Sunday. How would you kind of uh, explain all the, the different methodologies that are taking place on a Sunday across different churches?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. That can be sort of puzzling. Uh what I try to do in this book is not so much trace out why do the Baptists tend to worship this way and the Methodists that way, although you could do those historical studies.
0: Sure,
1: uh, that's for know, a what,
0: PhD, though, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. I'm more interested in going back to basics and saying, look, the Bible lays out some basic things every church is called to do. Uh, so let's start there. You know, the yeah. Protestant reformers, which is where all those different denominations trace their roots. Uh, when they recovered a biblical understanding of the gospel, they paired that with a biblical understanding of corporate worship because they very much understood that what we do when the church meets on Sunday is formative. It teaches. It demonstrates what God is. And the things we say and the things that we sing in church and even the order in which we do them, all will help shape people's understanding of who God is and how we can be reconciled to him through Christ. And so one of the things that many of the Reformers were zealous about is to be able to let every Christian have a clear conscience, let's only do in the church service what God has commanded us to do. So in that sense, it's not like, when the church staff meets on a Monday to decide what to do on this upcoming Sunday, they're staring at a blank whiteboard. And what do you guys want to do this week? What what can we do? <laughs> Dr- bring people in the door. No, God has already written on that whiteboard in permanent ink the main things he wants us to do. He wants us to preach the word. Right. That's just clear. He wants us to pray. Paul tells Timothy, lift up all sorts of prayers and supplications and thanksgiving. He wants us to sing the word. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Mm -hmm. He wants us to to read the word. This is something that's often left out in evangelical churches today. Public reading, sure. Yeah, Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. It's powerful when you just sit back and give two, three, four, five minutes to listening to the word read without any human comment or interpretation. God is speaking to his people in that moment. So they summarize it under preach the word, read the word, pray the word, sing the word, and also see the word as it is depicted or summarized in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Mm. So can we have discussions on the order in which to do those things? Yeah, and I think there's a wise or a less wise way to structure that and to order that. Can we have discussions on the form those things take? Do we sing with instruments or without instruments? Do we use an organ or a band? Sure, you know, we can have yeah. those sorts and of there's conversations. There's freedom within that. There's freedom within that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that doesn't mean every decision you make is equally wise, but different right. denominations have different traditions and, and different uh, history with that. And so that explains why churches may feel different. But my focus here is. Look at what is the basic core thing that's going on. Is time being given to the centrality of preaching? Is time being given to prayer? Is the singing something that we're mainly listening to trained professionals do? Or is it something that we're all participating in? Is it more like a concert or is it more like a family sing-along at a family reunion potluck? Right. I do believe our singing should be led with as much excellence as possible, but I think it is more like that family potluck. Uh, so anyway, that, that, those are some thoughts there.
0: Well, and, and that brings up a good point, and, and I think you even touched on it earlier. But but the the I guess a question around sort of how much should we be active, and how much is there passivity in that sort of church experience, that sort of Sunday morning worship experience?
1: Yeah. As much as possible, everything (laughs) should be made participatory. Yeah. Even something like preaching. You know, think about preaching, which ordinarily, one man is at the pulpit addressing the church from God's word. But it is a communal act at its core. I believe it's fundamentally different when a preacher is preaching to his congregation – versus uh, doing a kind of internet broadcast yes. or preaching on the radio. Yes. Now, those things are great. I think we should yes. use all that te- technology to yeah. get the word out. But there's this great quote from the British preacher, uh, G. Campbell Morgan. I think it's his son or his grandson was writing, recalling a time when Morgan was, Campbell Morgan was preaching, and they had turned down the lights for some reason. And he interrupted his own sermon to say, will the ushers be so kind as to turn the lights back up? I need to see the faces of the people. Indeed, they are a part of my notes. I love that because he was, obviously, you know he came prepared. He had done his study. He had prayed. He knew what he wanted to say, but he needed to see the faces of his people. And in some traditions, there's a wonderful culture of speaking up during the sermon. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. Clapping, talking back. I think... We can learn a lot from those traditions, even if we, you know, if you're uncomfortable with with those sorts of things, that's okay. But I think that's a great picture of how preaching is always a kind of a, a two way street. In that sense, that we are hearing the word, we're supposed to obey, we're supposed to respond in faith, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I encourage churches do whatever you can to make every element feel like it only works communally, corporately, because that's what it is.
0: Yeah. Spurgeon has a quote. I believe that every Christian ought to be joined to some visible church. That is his plain duty. According to the scriptures, God's people are not dogs, else they might go about one by one, but they are sheep and therefore should be in flocks. And I think you've, you've hit on it there about, you know, the way that the, even the preacher engages, that's the flock that he looks after that he tends to. And it's relational. It's a relational relationship. Uh and now we kind of shift gears slightly here because I want to talk about we're now in the middle of, well, middle end wherever we are in this pandemic, and people are in a sense engaging in the worship process, the the body worship process virtually. Yeah. What are the the problems that could emanate from that? What's okay, what's not okay? Should we be pushing against all this, you know, against government uh you know, enforcing these things and the, the size of the gatherings. You know, what what are some of your thoughts on the current situation with that?
1: Yeah, great questions, and I do hope we're getting closer to the end. And I, the main highlight Man. should be my prayer is that this time, uh, when many believers have been unable to gather, or they've been gathering but with constraints, masks, yeah. distancing, yeah. extra sure. services to accommodate whatever. Different churches have, have made different decisions. The takeaway is this season should make us all long to gather again with God's people. Amen. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. And Hebrews 10 says, do not give up meeting together. That's right. We need to meet together to encourage one another as the day draws near. And so pastors, but all, all believers, we need to be looking out for people in our flocks who might get too comfortable (laughs) with some of the live streaming options. Right. And, uh, you know, certain churches have used those. Uh, Certainly there's been times my congregation was unable to meet. And so we did something over live stream. I'm grateful my pastors made that live stream a little bit less like a typical church service and more like a prayer meeting. Uh, So we still sang. There was still teaching from from the Bible. There was time of prayer, but it was in slightly a different order. It was a bit more casual. Uh, because I, I think it is a different sort of thing. The technology sure. does change it. And I am of the view that you cannot take the Lord's Supper virtually. We mm-hmm. are embodied people, right. and the Lord's Supper is a family meal. So Absolutely. It's, I, I don't believe theologically that you can truly celebrate the Lord's Supper apart from one another. In fact, in First Corinthians 11, Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat because you're not waiting for certain members of the church to arrive. That's right. Uh, and I, I recognize there's there's good, thoughtful brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree on that point. But I, I make all of that just to, to say that whatever your church has done, however you've responded to the, to the pandemic, the point is we should be looking forward to gathering again. And you, you asked about government regulations. Yeah. Again, Romans 14 is the, the chapter that I keep on pointing people to because Romans 14 anticipates it addresses a situation that believers will disagree on tricky things and will have strong feelings about it. So we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. We shouldn't despair. We're equipped by God's word when believers have different points of view on tricky things. And Paul says, you've got to lay down your freedom in love for those who have a weaker conscience. And you can apply that in all sorts of ways.
0: Keeping in mind, you might be the weaker brother.
1: Exactly. Yes. Uh, uh, Don't assume you're always the strong one. (laughs) No, you're exactly right. And get this. I don't think it is a coincidence that Romans 14 comes right after Romans 13, where Paul talks about obeying the government and submitting to the government. Now, Scripture has a category for civil disobedience. Acts 5, we must obey God rather than man. So there are definitely times when Christians decide that in order to obey God, we disobey the government. This is why every congregation needs wise elders who are men of prayer who are seeking the word and seeking to apply these things to their church. And so churches may have different views on what constitutes the right time for disobeying the government. You know, I think if the government's laws are made with the intent of preserving life right. and public safety. And if the government is treating church gatherings the same as other sorts of gatherings, concerts, rallies, if if churches are not being singled out, right because that's where I think the government starts to overreach is if they single out churches, but they allow other sorts of gatherings that are similar in every every way hmm. and again, I assume you have uh, listeners from all over the world. This is a particularly American conversation because of the things in our constitution about freedom of speech and of assembly. You know, there are other believers in other countries who don't have the luxury of these conversations,
0: but they're having the same issues happen. Yes, you know, in Australia, they've they've sort of shut church services down, but other things have been allowed, and so you know, that's Christians are sort of raising their voices now and saying, "Hey, you know, what's going on here? Where do we draw the connection here?"
1: Yes, yeah, that's right. And I just want to say, whenever we have disagreements, because Christians will disagree, if, if once COVID is over, Lord willing. Something else will happen. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a political cycle, it'll be an election year, it'll be something we will have opportunity to disagree. And that is a gift given to us by God because it's an opportunity to show each other charity Amen. and to listen and to be gentle. We can certainly seek to persuade and yeah. teach with wisdom. It is an opportunity for us by God's grace and with his help to demonstrate the fruit of the Holy Spirit in those conversations. Gentleness, kindness, self-control.
0: Mm. Uh, we could all do with a extra dose of that. You know, Matt, one of sort of my last questions is around, you know, I'm not sure if you've come across this in your in your sort of research for your book, but generationally, you probably would see different ends or desires coming from worship or church experience. You know, it seems the millennial uh, generation there's there's a, seems to be more of an emphasis on emotionalism, having a, an emotional response, uh, experience. While maybe older generations aren't necessarily looking for that, there's maybe more out of uh, tradition, you know, obligation, those sorts of things. Have you come across any of those things in research for your book?
1: Oh, I mean, and I've been living that. My whole life, you know, those those are all the sorts of conversations I've been having ever since I was part of the youth praise band. And we wanted to do music differently than the grownups and, (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. And what I would say is the witness of the church to the outside world and the vibrant community life of the church to one another is enhanced when generational barriers are uh, transcended. Mm -hmm. By our unity in Christ. And uh, so, of course, I'm going to find it easier to relate to people who are my age, who who like the type of music I like, or who like the style of things that I like. But what's supernatural is when God gathers a people together who lay down those preferences for the sake of one another. Philippians 2 is a classic example of this, Mm -hmm. just turning there, because... Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or in conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you mm-hmm. look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so I think that there's a more powerful thing there. If when I gather with a the church, there's an 80-year-old widow who doesn't like the kind of music I like, but when we sing a praise song or a hymn, that's one of my favorites, it might not be her favorite, but she is singing it and I'm encouraged. That's an amazing thing for the watching world to see or vice versa. My pastor wanted us to start doing the song leading on the everlasting arms more (laughs) old, old classic. Yeah. yeah. He said, you know, I want you to lead this song and we got to start doing this more. I think it's going to be really encouraging to people and, it's, it's a simple song of devotion and, and trust. I think the lyrics are all true. Uh, I personally find the tune to be somewhat hokey or cheesy. Okay. True sure. confessions. If that's your favorite sure, song, yeah. I don't mean to offend sure. you. But it's called Candid said,
0: Conversations for no reason.
1: Exactly. <laughs> candidly, I don't love the tune. And so I told him that. I was like, ah, you know, this tune just feels too dated. He's like, well. I want you to do it anyway, and so you know I had to lead that song with a smile. Submit to my pastor, and man, the Lord rebuked me and taught me mm. such a lesson because so many people were blessed by that song. I could see it on their faces, um, and so I realized, oh wow, people are doing that for me all mm. the time. Yeah, and yes, I would rather be part of a church where people are laying down their preferences, even if it's not their. Favorite song, their favorite style, because they care more about the, the growth and unity of the body than having their preferences met. Mm. That That's hard. You know, like I said, yeah, that's hard. a lesson I had to learn. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still learning it. The Lord is, is still working on me and my heart in that. But now when I sing Leading on the Everlasting Arms, it's interesting. Our, our tastes are malleable. And so a song that I once kind of poo-pooed as being, ah, you know, this is traditional. This is cheesy. Well, now... I gotta confess, I kind of like it, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, because yeah. I, I just see it in a different
0: way. Yeah. Well, and it, and it, as we talked about again, it's it's it, as the body gathers, it's displaying a kingdom not of this world, right? It, yes, it, it's the things you, you wouldn't expect to see anywhere outside of here, but when that body of people who are of multiple generations of, of different socioeconomic status of different races, all those things, all of a sudden they're unified. And, and as you said, you know, laying down that uh, that sense of preference or or, or, or even, you know, a, a word that gets thrown around a lot now is entitlement. You know, I feel entitled yeah. to, uh, you know, this is what I want. This is. And so I'm going to find a church that fits that versus right. I'm going to find a body That's going to feed me and allow me to use my gifts to help build up others. And that's, that's a picture of a healthy church, I think.
1: Yes, no, you're exactly right. And so that, that means that all of us need to be willing to sacrifice certain preferences for the sake of the whole and say, okay, what is happening here is different than when I go to a shopping mall and it caters to my desires and I pick the store I like, and I go to the food court and I pick the the food I like, this is just a different sort
0: of thing. Well, Matt Mercer, this is uh, this has been wonderful. I've I've loved this conversation. Uh, the book is Corporate Worship: How the Church Gathers as God's People, and people can find that on Amazon or any bookstore. Or what's the best way to find your book?
1: I think they can find it on Amazon or uh, ten of those uh, bookstore has been running a sale on it. It's a Christian book website, so you can look at ten the number ten of those dot com.
0: Matt, we have a final question we ask uh nearly almost all of our guests and uh it's this question of when you first enter into the kingdom of God, what's the first question you would have for God the Father? Wow. Uh, <laughs> you're you're not the first one to have that questions. reaction. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I top, am top uh top of the list.
1: Top of the list. I I'm half Jewish, um and I'm I'm burdened uh, mm. by the way that uh, many of my ancestors were treated uh, yes. over history. And wow. my grandmother, who's 96, uh, she does not believe in Yeshua as her Messiah. Uh, she doesn't really even believe in God, although she's Jewish. She, she's mm. essentially an atheist yeah. uh, because of the Holocaust. And... I don't have a great answer. I've read the book of Job and I've read Habakkuk and I've been helped by lamentations and these sections of scripture that have honest, hard questions. And I know the Lord does not take gladness in the death of the wicked because scripture says that I've read the theology and I've, I've had those pastoral conversations with others (laughs) who, who bring this question to me. And I just tell them, I have these questions too. And I, I, look forward to the day when the Lord will help us understand uh, his ways and his wisdom. And you quoted Spurgeon earlier. I love the Spurgeon quote, uh, when you cannot trace his hand, learn to trust his heart. Mm. And I know that we see his heart displayed at the cross, uh, where the only truly righteous and innocent person was slain for us. So that is, in a sense, the greatest injustice that's ever occurred. Uh, the death of the innocent one on the cross for the sake of justifying the guilty like you and me. Mm -hmm. So I go there and I see, okay, I know that God is a God of love. I I know that he has given me undeserved grace and salvation. And I I have to start there. But that doesn't mean my questions are unresolved. I still lay up at at night wondering about these things. And Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure many listening do as well. And I am trusting that The uh, things that have been revealed are revealed to us, as Deuteronomy says, but the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And he has shown us his character Mm -hmm. in his word and at the cross. And and that's why
0: I still trust him. Amen. That's a good one. (laughs) Matt Merker, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on Candid Conversations and, uh, and share a little bit with us. Once again, the book is Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People. Matt, thanks again so much. Thank
1: you, Jonathan. It's been great talking with you.
0: Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you'd never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It helps people to find us, and we will send you a free copy of Dad's latest book, Hope for This Present Crisis. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.